We've already said that we are grateful for Easter, that Jesus is certainly alive today. Amen? Amen. Just as much as he was a week ago. Every time we gather, church, the more we get this in our minds and our hearts, the more we will experience the fullness of Christ in our week-to-week worship. That every time we gather, whether it be Easter or Christmas or any Sabbath in between, that we are gathering to celebrate the risen Jesus who is alive and sits on the throne over the entire universe. That's every Sunday. And so I'm so glad that you're here this morning. Um, If you were here last week, I'm so glad that you're here this week. We've observed Easter and the resurrection, and I think it's fitting this morning that we continue to look in the Gospels to some of the experiences of Jesus' followers after the resurrection. And this morning we're going to look at one of the twelve of Jesus' disciples, the one called Thomas. We're going to look at Thomas this morning, and what's the first thing you think of when you hear the name Thomas? Doubt. Doubting. We call Thomas the doubter sometimes. And that isn't a name given to Thomas by the scriptures. If you realize that, Thomas is never called that in the scriptures. That's a name given to him by us. And I've always felt sorry for Thomas and a little bit of pity because he's been labeled that way. You know what I'm saying? Um, I'm pretty sure that you wouldn't want to be labeled by one of your character flaws, right? Like, I don't really want anybody calling me long-winded Eric. <laughs> so, you, you probably have, but uh, there, there's, uh, I mean, think of, think of a character flaw that you have, and what if you were known throughout history as that adjective right before your name, all the time. Like, Thomas gets a bad rap. Uh, So today, I hope that we will leave um, and you will have reconsidered how you regard Thomas. Because I think we completely get Thomas wrong. The Bible doesn't actually tell us a whole lot about Thomas. The Synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us almost nothing of Thomas other than naming him among the twelve. But the Gospel of John does. The Gospel of John is the only Gospel that gives us a glimpse of Thomas's personality. So before we look at our main text in chapter 20 this morning, I want to give you, there's so little about the life and personality of Thomas, we're going to basically look at his entire backstory really quick before we look at chapter 20. So, um, and, and you don't have to look these up, but I want to, uh, but I want to tell you about those. Before John 20, which is Thomas's encounter with the risen Christ. There's two other accounts of Thomas in the Gospel of John. The first one is in chapter 11, and this is back to the story of Lazarus, of the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus received word that Lazarus was sick, and John says that Jesus stays where he is for two whole days after he gets word that Lazarus is sick. He doesn't immediately go. And he's traveling from up north and he has to come down to Bethany, which is in Judea. And so he finally says to the disciples after a couple of days, let's go to Judea. And the disciples, it's kind of funny that they feel like they have to remind Jesus of something. (laughs) 
But they say to him in chapter 11, uh, Lord, don't you remember the last time we were in Judea? Uh, the Jews tried to stone you. They tried to murder you. So why are we going back there? And Jesus reminds them that nothing happens to him that is outside the sovereignty and the control of the Father. That there's nothing for them to be afraid of. That nothing, no fate will come upon him that is not already planned out by the Father. So he says there's no reason to be afraid. We're going to go. And Jesus explains to them that Lazarus is actually dead and that he's intentionally waited so that they would be able to see his glory. They would be able to see the glory of the Father in what he was going to do. It was all planned. So then in chapter 11, they're having this dialogue and Jesus is explaining why they're about to go to see Lazarus. And in verse 16 of chapter 11, Thomas speaks up. And this is what it says in verse 16. It says, Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, which is, which, which is translated the twin, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now, have you ever heard the phrase Debbie Downer? <laughs> Debbie Downer is a character uh, that was portrayed in, uh, on Saturday Night Live. Um, and basically, it's, it, it, and it's a name that's basically given to anybody that in the midst of any kind of situation, they can just pull out the most negative uh, perspective of all. They just seem to be completely pessimistic. Um, and so this sounds like uh, a Debbie Downer moment for Thomas. Um, they're, they're trying to convince Jesus, we don't need to go there because they tried to kill you. And you know that what's in their mind has to be, if they tried to kill you, then they probably don't like us very much either, Jesus. We, we really aren't excited about going there. But Thomas, once Jesus says, no, we have to go, Thomas says, well, let's go so we can die along with him. <laughs> uh, Thomas seems to be a glass half-empty kind of guy. You know, the, the, the optimist says that the glass is half full. The pessimist says that the glass is half-empty. Thomas seems to be one of those glass half-empty guys. But even in his pessimism, he shows a great loyalty and a great faithfulness and a great love for Jesus. Because if you realize what he's saying here is, like, if he were really afraid, if he were really disloyal to Jesus, I think he, along with some of the others, would have said, okay, Jesus, you just go on to Judea. We'll just wait right here. Or we'll catch up with you later. But Thomas says, no, let's go with him. He says, let's go. It's so we may die with him as if to say, if the fate of Jesus right now is going to be death, then I'm going to be there with him. There's a, there's a deep loyalty that, that Thomas has to Jesus. And the second place Thomas is mentioned, that was chapter 11. Move on to chapter 14. And this is the night before Jesus is arrested and crucified. He's with the disciples celebrating the Passover, and Jesus is trying to comfort them and prepare them for what's about to happen that night, his betrayal, his arrest, and his crucifixion. And in chapter 14, um, beginning in verse 1, let me just read a very familiar discourse that Jesus gives the disciples here in chapter 14. Verse 1 says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms, and if that were not so... 
Would I have told you that I'm coming back to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And then again, for the second time in the gospel, Thomas speaks up and he says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answers him in verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Thomas loved Jesus deeply. And the thought of being separated from Jesus... This idea that Jesus is leaving them, he's going away, he's, he's not going to be with them anymore, uh, was unbearable to Thomas. He was distraught, and so he speaks up and says, Lord, as if to say, Jesus, my desire is not to leave you. I'm not going to leave you. I don't want you to go away. You've got to tell us where you're going, because we don't know exactly where you're going, so how are we going to know the way to where you're going if you don't tell us where you're going? Like, I've I'll, almost maybe with, with a sense of, of panic in, in his heart. Like, God, no, 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 Jesus, you can't leave. Wherever you're going, I'm going with you. And he deeply wanted to understand. So Thomas seems to have a dark negative side to him, but it didn't change the fact that he deeply loved Jesus. Deeply loved Jesus. And one thing that Thomas did not lack was courage. Or loyalty, even to the point of death. Thomas may have been a little pessimistic. He may have been a little dark. But he loved Jesus. And he was loyal to Jesus. And he wanted to be with Jesus all the time. So shortly after this, Jesus is betrayed, arrested, put on trial, crucified... And he's dead and buried. So imagine for a moment this character of Thomas. This moment of deep depression and sadness that likely consumed Thomas when Jesus was gone. He's dead. He's been crucified. He's been buried. It's been three days. And Thomas is reeling with mourning and, and sorrow. That fear that Thomas had of being separated from Jesus when Jesus said, I'm going somewhere else. And Thomas says, no, Lord, we don't know where you're going. We, I, I've got to know so that I can follow you. This fear came true for Thomas. Jesus was gone and he wasn't with him anymore. So the depth of his mourning was just as sincere and just as strong as the other disciples, the other ten, if, if not more so because of what little we know about Thomas in the Gospel of John. Now, as we get to chapter 20, we read John's account of the resurrection and the discovery of the empty tomb. John then tells of the encounters of Mary Magdalene and Peter and John having found the empty tomb and seeing it for themselves 
And then he tells of Jesus' appearance to Mary. And he tells us that all three of them go back to the group and gives testimony of what they've seen. Peter and John go back and say, hey, we, we saw the tomb. It was empty. And Mary comes back and said, I've, I've seen Jesus. I saw him. He spoke to me. But even with those testimonies, all of the group still remained in that place where they were. They still remained in that house, huddled together in hiding and in fear. So up until this point, aside from Peter and John and Mary, the rest of the group that were gathered in there, they weren't so confident that Jesus was alive that they were brave enough to get out of there. They were still, they were still hiding. But then the scriptures say in verse 19, which is where we're going to start, this is the night after Jesus has, has resurrected. This is that evening when they're all gathered together. And we're going to start reading in verse 19. And this is what it says. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Notice Jesus didn't have to open any doors. It says the doors were locked. They were barred inside. Jesus didn't have to do that. Jesus just walked in. He just walked through the house. Walked through the doors. There he is in their presence. And he speaks peace on them. They did not feel peaceful. They were afraid. They were scared. And Jesus says, peace be with you. Almost as if to say, I am your peace. I am here. I am with you. Verse 20. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And by the way, right here in verse 23, it's not that Jesus is giving them the authority to forgive sin as if they were God. But he's commissioning them. That verse before is key to that. He says, just, um, just as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. He says, I'm sending you out as ambassadors of the message to tell others that salvation will come through forgiveness of sin. And when you proclaim that message into people's lives, they can experience it. And this is the same responsibility that he gives us. To go and preach repentance of sin, forgiveness by the grace of Jesus. So he's speaking to them. That's in verse 23. Now look at verse 24. It says, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, again, the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. When Jesus appeared to them the first time that night, Thomas was not there. And we don't know exactly why he wasn't there. We don't know where Thomas was. There's no explanation for, for why he was not present that night. 
So, when they all begin to tell Thomas what they've seen of Jesus, his skepticism and his sorrow comes out. Thomas was so broken at the loss of Jesus that he refused to believe. And I think he said, I refuse to believe because he wasn't going to allow himself to be hopeful just to let his hope get destroyed again. It was too painful for him. And he wasn't going to set himself up to experience that same pain of Jesus' death all over again. The word of all of his friends and companions there just wasn't enough for him to hold on to. So Thomas is trying to avoid this roller coaster of expectation and disappointment. And does that really make Thomas any different than the rest of us? That's the same roller coaster of emotions that we sometimes go through that is painful, that is dark, that, that is difficult when we go to visit the doctor and the doctor says and it doesn't look good and we think something is wrong and and then we we come back and you get a good report it says oh well things are looking good things are looking better and our hope and expectation goes up and then all of a sudden the doctor comes back and says up oh, there's something else we didn't see there's something else gone wrong like like we've experienced that so many of us in this room have experienced that before that roller coaster of well, if things are bad, oh, I think things are getting better. Oh, no, they're not. And, and, and that's painful. We, we want to avoid that at all costs. Um, you, you walk into a bank. You want to buy your first home. And, or, or you want to finance something that you want or need for your family. And you walk in and the, and the loan officer says, oh, yeah, everything looks fine. Oh, this looks good. This looks good. We're going to be able to do this for you. And so you get excited. You start making your plans. And then you get a phone call that says, oh. Oh, we found something. We found something that we don't like. We found something that looks bad. We're not going to be able to do this for you. Whew. Crash and burn. I remember an experience when Kim and I were, were moving. When we were moving from Garden Lakes to, to Lindale, we had our house sold. We had somebody who was going to buy our house. And I remember our, our friend Phil Blanton was at my house, and he was helping us uh, move and get out and we were going to be closing on our house like the next day and we're moving stuff out of our house and we literally have a refrigerator our refrigerator halfway out the door on hand trucks loading it onto our car when over half of our stuff has gone out of our house and we get a call from our real estate agent that says oh listen we might have a problem <laughs> what I'm literally holding my refrigerator on two wheels what problem are we talking about? Well, the people that were going to buy your loan, buy your house, they couldn't get their loan approved. What? And, and, that, and that feeling of, <gasps> wow. And, and, and the Lord worked it out, and it worked out fine. But, but just that emotional, this is what Thomas is guarding himself against. He's like, I can't do it, guys. I can't let myself believe that it, just because you tell me, uh, you, all you guys may be like stir crazy because you've been shut up in this room for too long or something. I can't let myself believe that. Because if it's not true, I don't think I can take it. So then this is what happens. Look in verse 26 now. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. 
Though the doors were locked, again, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. He says the very same thing to them that he said before. But this time Thomas is there. Verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, Jesus finds Thomas. And he seeks him out and he goes and he stands face to face with Thomas and says, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Now, this is, this is where the transition happens. Now, it's after a whole week that they've all been together in the same place again. And Jesus appears to them a second time. And this time he goes straight to Thomas. And he addresses him specifically. And here I want us to notice the grace and the love that Jesus shows to Thomas in the midst of his doubt. Here's the first thing. Jesus returns to the same place to bring to Thomas the same experience of his presence that the other disciples had already experienced. He, he meets him in the same place with the rest of them that they had already experienced it before. He comes in and he says the same thing in the presence of Thomas that he said without Thomas there. And then he comes... Why didn't Jesus appear to Thomas somewhere else? Like, why, why couldn't Jesus have, like, ran into Thomas while he was in town? Or ran into Thomas somewhere else and, and had an encounter? Could, couldn't he have done that? Of course he could have. But I believe that Jesus wanted Thomas to have his breakthrough moment of faith and belief together with the disciples in the same way that Thomas had missed it before. He wanted Thomas to experience his presence the same way that the rest of them did so that they could all be unified together, so that they could experience Jesus together. I believe that he wanted him to have the same experience as everybody else before he had missed that unifying experience with the rest of them. But now he could be unified together with them again by their, by their common experience of seeing the resurrected Jesus. This is another reason that I believe corporate worship together is really, really important. When we experience the presence of Jesus together, it solidifies our community and it merges our hearts closer in unity. It makes us one. That's why God intends for you to come to church. People say, well, I can worship God anywhere. You sure can. I can experience God's presence anywhere. I don't have to be in church. Absolutely. But there's something about experiencing the presence of Jesus together with other believers that God, Jesus did not want Thomas to miss that. So he waited until Thomas was back together with the group. And then he says, Thomas, I'm going to come to you so that you can have the same experience that the rest of them had. You just missed it. So Thomas could be a part of the group again. He could be brought back into the fellowship, back into the community that those guys shared together. He didn't want Thomas to be out here all by himself having this isolated experience when all the rest of them had this joint unifying experience. And so he brings Thomas back into that same moment so that they can share that together. 
And it's the same thing with us. That's why you should be here. Because when Jesus comes into our presence, the more we experience him together, the closer we become. The more of a unified church we are. Here's the second thing. Jesus graciously invites Thomas to touch his wounds. And though he, Jesus wasn't present, he knew what Thomas had said. And he offered the evidence that Thomas said he needed to believe. Jesus wasn't around when Thomas said that to the disciples. When they said, we've seen Jesus, we've seen Jesus. And Thomas goes, no, I'm going to have to see it. You know, I'm not just going to have to see it. I'm going to have to touch his hands. I'm going to have to be able to put my fingers where those nails went through. Because I, like, I, I won't be able to let my heart fully accept it until it's undeniable. Jesus didn't know he said that. So, but, but he did. He wasn't around. Jesus wasn't around when Thomas said that. But he knew what Thomas said. He knew Thomas's heart. So that's why he goes straight to Thomas and he holds his hands out. And he says, this is, if this is what you need to believe that I'm real, then here. If, if, if this is what you need to, to really be able to grasp hold of what's happening, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you that opportunity. I think this tells us something about how Jesus relates to us when we doubt. Jesus may not always give you exactly what you ask for, but Jesus isn't afraid of our doubt. And he never shames Thomas in his doubt. Jesus is not afraid of your doubts. He wasn't threatened by Thomas's doubt. And he never shames Thomas. Do you notice that? He doesn't say to Thomas, I can't believe. I can't believe you didn't believe me. I can't believe you didn't believe the other guys. I'm here. He, he doesn't do that. He simply graciously comes to Thomas and says, Thomas, it's okay for you to stop doubting. Please stop doubting. Here I am. And if you need to touch my hands, here they are. If you need to take your hand and stick it in my side here where they pierced me to make sure I was dead, go ahead. You see, he simply reveals himself to Thomas in a way that Thomas needed to see him and invites him to let his doubt become his faith. You see, I think we're way more afraid of doubt than Jesus is. We fear doubt much more than God does. Because we don't understand always that doubt and unbelief are two completely different things. Doubt is, is the questioning of what you do believe or what you want to believe. Unbelief is a determined refusal to believe. And I tried to put it into pictures and I'm thinking, doubt is like the light and the water that can make that seed of faith begin to grow. That, that's doubt. Unbelief, if there's unbelief, there's no seed there to begin with. It's a, it's a refusal to believe anything. Doubt can only exist in the presence of faith. I mean, think about it. You, you can't doubt something that you don't somewhat believe. 
or it wouldn't be doubt. If you have zero belief in it, then that's unbelief. Doubt and unbelief are two different things. And so Jesus knows this of Thomas. He knows that Thomas loves him. He knows that Thomas's heart wants to believe. But doubt has, has overwhelmed him. And he says, he, he, he says, Thomas, I know. I know that little seed of faith is still there. And so I want to let that bloom. I want to let that blossom. Thomas knew that he could believe if he could only see and touch and experience what the rest of them had seen. Thomas wasn't refusing to believe that Jesus was alive completely. He was holding on to hope that it may be true. He just had to experience it for himself to fully grasp it. I mean, think about it. It's not any different than what the rest of them experienced. All Thomas was saying was, I won't be able to believe it like you do until I experienced it the way you did. He wasn't asking, Thomas really wasn't asking for anything beyond what Jesus had already given the rest of the disciples. He just said, you guys saw it, I didn't. And I can't just take your word for it. I've got to see it. I've got to be able to touch it. Doubt isn't something that we should shame in ourselves or in other people. The places in our lives where doubt lives often can become the most fertile ground for roots of deep faith to grow. Don't be afraid of your doubt because often those places of doubt in our heart is the place where Jesus wants to plant seeds and he wants to grow the deepest roots of faith. And sometimes the deepest roots of our faith come from those places where we're struggling to believe, that we're doubting. We're more threatened by our own doubt than Jesus is. And if we don't allow ourselves to doubt from time to time, we rob ourselves of the joy of faith that God can bring us on the other side of that doubt. Sometimes we think that it's wrong for us to doubt, so we just, we don't allow ourselves to doubt. We either believe or we don't. And those struggles, sometimes doubt is like, it, it tills that soil, it, it mixes it up, it, it shakes it around so that, so that it can be loosened, so that something great can grow there. Great faith can grow out of doubt. And then lastly, Jesus' grace to meet Thomas in his place of doubt resulted in the strongest confession of faith that anyone had ever expressed to Jesus. Now this is where I think Thomas gets a bad rap. People throughout the Gospels had called Jesus lots of things. They called him rabbi. They called him teacher. They called him prophet. Peter who often gets credit for having what we call the good confession, Peter said, when, when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. But Thomas was the first disciple to put into words the truth that Jesus was both Lord and sovereign God, that he embodied the fullness of God. He, he says to Jesus, my Lord and my God, by saying my Lord he proclaimed Jesus as his sovereign master, his ruler. And he was expressing total and absolute surrender to Jesus. Jesus was not just the door to the fire escape. 
that so many people treat Jesus as. He called Jesus my Lord. And he said, my God. It's the first confession of Jesus' deity by any of the disciples. Jesus as God. And do you also notice something else about Thomas? The scripture never says that Thomas had to touch Jesus. It never said that Thomas actually reached out and touched Jesus' hands or that he actually reached out and touched Jesus' side. The, the vision, the, the, to be face-to-face with Jesus physically and to have Jesus speak to him was all Thomas needed. He didn't really need to touch Jesus because he didn't. He immediately, when Jesus spoke to him, he fell down and said, My Lord and my God. And then look at how Jesus responds to him very quickly in verse 29. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here's why God has given us Thomas's story in the Gospel of John. Not so that we could believe that Jesus was Thomas's Lord and God. That's not the reason for the story. The reason is so that we can believe that Jesus is our Lord and our God. God gives John this story to put into the scriptures... Not so that we can read about Thomas and say, good for him. John finishes out the chapter and finishes out the story by saying, the whole reason this has been written is so that you can believe. Not so that we can read that Thomas said, my Lord and my God. He says, but the desire is, God's desire is for you to respond the same way Thomas did. That you make Jesus your Lord. And that you recognize him as your God. Jesus was pleased that Thomas could believe after he saw him. But then Jesus called us blessed. The ones who haven't seen him and still believe. So if you identify with Thomas this morning... And you think, man, I struggle with doubt. There's some things in my faith, things in my life that I doubt. Maybe you're doubting that, that the gospel is even true. Maybe you're doubting that Jesus could even save you. Could he really forgive me of my sins? People talk about that all the time. I don't know if that's really true. If you identify with Thomas this morning, Jesus is reaching his invisible hands out to you and inviting you to touch what you can't see. to stop doubting, and to believe in him as your Lord and your God.